welcome to Creekside Church. We're excited to have you here this morning. Let's go ahead and stand together as we sing our next song. Alan, I am going to give just a quick Awana update. You've all heard the phrase, we need to fill our cup. We need to have a, a cup that's full and overflowing. I've got the perfect remedy for that. You know, because sometimes on Sunday, we come here and everybody's, right, we're in good moods. You know, we're around believers. We can give blessings. We can receive blessings from those around us. Sometimes by Wednesday, if I, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes by Wednesday, we're kind of you know, it weighs on you a little bit. The world weighs on you a little bit, whether you have to go to work or kids or, you know, whatever. Not to blame the kids. Sorry, kids. But, um, but anyway, so Wednesday night comes and Awana comes, and, and uh, my wife would be the first to tell you, there's times I've said, man, it's going to be tough to go there tonight. And by the time I'm coming home, I'm going, is it over already? So we do need some help. We need verse listeners and just, just listening to kids that are memorizing verses is a blessing that is beyond uh, what you can imagine. We also need some kitchen help. I know Debbie does a great job with, uh, and I don't know if you're aware, but we serve, I don't know, 70 to 100 meals on Wednesday night to, to the kids that come and their parents and anybody that wants to come. So that's a big deal. And then we need a Cubbies leader also uh, to work with uh, Mike Nicewarner. So that's, if that's an option, if you like the small, small kids, he needs some help there too. But, you know, pray about it. Sign up if you will. Talk. If you have further questions, you can talk to Mark or Mary Klein. They run an excellent program, and I'm, I'm glad to be part of it. I will end with this, though. It, it's a warning that after spending time with the kids, you will be blessed, and uh, you might need a bigger cup. That's all I'm going to say. So thanks. Right. Thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, and just, you know, to emphasize how quickly th that's going to be here, uh, I believe the first night for Juana is August 30th. So uh, we're a month out, and uh, so start, you know, gearing up for fall, remembering that uh, school is coming. It's going to be here soon. Just a couple other quick reminders uh, and announcements. We're going to have a baptism here in uh, two weeks. So if you're interested, we really need to get your information this week. Uh, I believe, look in the bulletin, there should be some some information on that. I think you can send an email to info at creeksidedm.com if that's something that you would like to find out more about. Uh, and I think next Sunday there is a baptism instruction uh, time after the service. So if you're among that group who is interested in, in uh, being baptized, then you'll want to try to be here next week and, and plan to stick around after the service for just a little bit. So I'm going to read a uh, read a couple verses here from Psalm 63 just to kind of put our hearts in in a mode of of worship Psalm 63 starts out like this oh God you are my God earnestly I seek you my soul thirsts for you my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. And we can probably all maybe just find some sympathy with David when he says, you know, this feeling of being in a dry and weary land where there's no water. And, 
And the world does that to us. It, it'll, it'll suck out that spiritual vitality that we have and that we really crave. And so just to come before the presence of the Lord, we should do it every day. Uh, come to God and tell him, you know, I need you to fill my cup. I need you to give me that energy for the day um, and remind me of why I'm here. And so we're going to do that together this morning as well uh, as we sing this next song. But just that, that thought that because God's steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That's why we're here today. God's steadfast love and what he's done for us uh, is, is worthy of our praise. Uh, let's, let's pray for a moment. God, uh, we just pray that you would help our hearts to set aside those, those worries, those distractions, um, whether it be the news, whether it be personal difficulties, whether it be uh, our jobs, whatever might try to enter in and, and distract us from you, God. I just pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and that, Father, you would renew us and recharge us and, and send us out this week uh, with hearts that are filled with your truth and uh, a reminder of why we're here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Alan. Thanks, worship team, for leading us. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. I'm glad you're here worshiping with us this morning, and I'm glad that I can be here worshiping with you this morning. I want to start by thanking all of you. I've been told by a number already of people who have been praying for me this week, and I thank you very much and appreciate it, and say don't stop now. Keep praying, because we're not quite there yet. For those of you who don't know, I'm Jesse, uh, the newly hired youth pastor um, here at Creekside, and i um, I've been asked to, to share with you guys this morning on a First Samuel, and I really am excited to be here sharing with you. You might not be able to see it because I'm a bit nervous, and when I'm nervous, the emotion has a hard time coming through. But I want to challenge you guys, first off, before we get going, um, as, as you're listening to what I have to say and looking at God's Word, to not become distracted by me. I'll probably make a few blunders along the way, and don't spend too much time to, trying to evaluate, do I like the new guy, is he a good speaker? But look at God's word and what he has to say. I'm not going to be able to impress you with um, any clever or elegant words, but as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.4, we're relying on the power of the Holy Spirit um, to communicate the truth of Jesus. So yeah, try to look past me. Don't get stuck up on the, the man. Look to God. So before we get started, allow me to open in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your provision for us, for the food we eat each day, for the comfort of our homes, for roofs over our head, for the air conditioning that we can enjoy today as we worship you in the heat of the summer. I just <clears throat> thank you for this place that we can have where we come together to worship you freely and to learn to live for you openly. I pray that today as we study your word, you will fill us with your spirit, that we might understand it, and apply it to our lives and how we live and into what we believe. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 23. 
And I don't know about you guys, but I've really been enjoying this series in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel's always been one of my favorite books when I was younger. It's my favorite one to read because there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. There's some action, some battles and whatnot. But as I've matured, or at least matured a little bit, I've really enjoyed going back through and reading these stories and looking at what God has to teach me and what what we can learn from the examples of David and what we can learn about God's character. So before we dive into the text, I just want to do a quick review for those of you who have been here and a little update of what's been going on in 1 Samuel for those of you who haven't. So 1 Samuel is a book about God and what he's doing amongst his people as the the reign of the judges comes to an end and as the kings begin to rule. So Samuel, the man Samuel, um, is the last judge. And we see in this book a little bit of him ruling, but we also see The people wanted a king, and so God has Samuel appoint and anoint a king for the people, Saul. However, quickly, Saul shows himself to be unworthy and doesn't follow God's commands. So God rejects Saul and anoints another, David, in his place. However, the interesting part of the story is is God doesn't immediately take Saul out of his position and put David in as king. But rather, he blesses everything David does, and we see David slowly rising from a shepherd boy up. And in that rise, we see him become a commander in Saul's army. We see he marries one of Saul's daughters. And along the way, somewhere, Saul starts to get jealous of David, and he begins to hunt after and try to kill David. So David is on the run from his own father-in-law. He's an outlaw in, in his own lands, And as we saw last week, a group of a ragtag band of outsiders, those who are fearing for their life, have gathered to him. So we have David out in the wilderness, hiding out in a cave from his father-in-law, who seeks to kill him. So if you're worried about your relationship with your in-laws, maybe rethink it. If your father-in-law is not trying to kill you, maybe it's not so bad. But for real, when we see the plight that David's in, I think we should be reminded a bit of, of the, the warnings that we get in the New Testament of the, the hardship and the suffering that we're going to face as followers of Christ. And as we see the suffering that David and the trials that he faces here, it, it'll help us to kind of put our suffering in perspective. And I don't want to minimize the suffering that we face because we all do face trials and suffering. Even here in America, a lot of times we talk about how we have it easier than other countries, which is true, but we still face trials and sufferings. And I don't want to minimize that. I want us to, to be aware of where we're at and, and try to apply what we're learning today to those situations. So one, one area that we've all kind of shared a trial in these last few years has been with the onset of the COVID pandemic and the changing economy that's happening around us. These factors have brought hardships to our churches and to individuals. A lot of us have faced hard times and been tested, and that test is, will we continue to serve the Lord? Will we continue in love and grace and truth? Will we keep trusting for God to provide for us? Or are we going to start to take things into our own hands? Will we start lashing out at those around us who have opposing views Are we going to stop sacrificing our time and money as things get tight? These are tests that we face and the hardships that we run into here in our world. So here in 1 Samuel, we find David facing similarly uncertain times with maybe higher stakes than we'll ever encounter. But with all this in the back of our mind, let's jump to 1 Samuel 
and look at what it has to say for us. I'll be reading from the NASB, which I believe is going to be up on the screen uh, if you guys want to follow along in the NASB. So starting in verse 1, 1 Samuel 23. Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are plundering the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once more, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, and he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. Now it came about when Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. When it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him. So he said to Abathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah and destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. David stayed in the wilderness and the strongholds and remained in the hill country and the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. Verse 15. Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, Do not be afraid, because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you, and you will be king over Israel, and I will be next to you. And Saul, my father, knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed at Horish while Jonathan went to his house. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds of Horish, on the hills of Hecala, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to do so, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed of the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go now, make more sure, and investigate, and see the place where his haunt is, and all who have seen him there. For I am told that he is very cunning. So look and learn about all the hiding places where he hides himself, and return to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among the thousands of Judah. Then they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Moan, oh, Maon, and Arabah to the south of Jeshurun. When Saul and his men went back to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David into the wilderness of Maon. 
Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry, come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore they called that place the Rock of Escape. David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of Engedi. All right, let's, uh, let's pray and thank God for his word. Father, I thank you for, for your word to us. Thank you for preserving it through time that we could learn from it. I pray that you'll help us to be sensitive um, to what you have for us to learn today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know about you guys, but when I read a passage like that, especially one that long with that many different events going on, it's kind of hard to keep it all straight in my head, especially the first time I read it. I had to read it a good 10 to 15 times before I was settled with it. And sadly, we don't have time for me to do that for you guys. So I'm going to summarize it for you briefly. I'm going to break it up into four different parts to hopefully help you remember all that's going on. So we've got kind of one big story, but four different parts of it in sequential order. So first, we have David and his men hiding in the caves out in the wilderness. And they get news that there are Philistines raiding a nearby town. The Philistines are the enemy of Israel, but it isn't the army that's currently chasing them. Saul's army is the one chasing them. So that David inquires of the Lord and asks the Lord, should we go to help protect this town? Remember, David has 600 men. Not a, a bad force, but not a huge force. So he inquires of the Lord, should we go to the town and protect it? And God affirms and says, yeah, go to the town. I will, I'll hand them over to you. And David's men are a little fearful, so he inquires of the Lord again, and the Lord graciously reaffirms them again. So they go, and they experience a great victory, and the town apparently is thankful because they let them stay in the town afterwards. So David and his men are now staying in the town of Keilah. So that's part one. Part two of the story, Saul hears that David and his men are in the town of Keilah. And Saul thinks, ah, this is a great opportunity for me. David's in one spot trapped in inside of a city. I can go and besiege the, the town there. And so David becomes aware of this and again inquires of the Lord and asks, is Saul going to come? Should we leave? The Lord affirms it and they, they leave Keilah and go back out into the wilderness. So that's their first um, time evading Saul. So that's the second part third part of our section today is when they're back out in the wilderness, David and his men, and Jonathan, Saul's son, David's brother-in-law, who would be heir to the throne, except for the fact that God has now appointed David to be heir to the throne. Jonathan comes to David, who should be, in the world's view, his rival. He comes to David to encourage him. He, he risks his own life. He risks getting in trouble with his dad to go and encourage what the world would see as his rival. And he doesn't just encourage him as a friend. He encourages him in the Lord. He examples the faith that David needs to have, the trust in God that David needs to have. Sorry, getting a little ahead of myself. Sorry, I was supposed to just be talking about uh, what happened. not, not <laughs> observing too much. So third event, Jonathan goes and encourages David. All right, so the last bit of our story, the fourth part, is where Saul finds David again. Some, some of the locals reveal David's position. Saul has them do some scouting, and a chase begins. David's men are running from Saul's army. They're running alongside a mountain. Saul's army comes along the other side, and it seems like they're about to be surrounded. And just in the nick of time, a messenger shows up and tells Saul, 
a Philistine army has come to raid our lands. So Saul has to go back to defend his, his province and his territory. And thus David is saved and at the place that they call the Rock of Escape. So hopefully thinking of it in those four different parts will help you uh, remember what happened and kind of keep it in order in your mind because as we meditate on this passage today, I'm not exactly going to be going through it in chronological order. So I hope that you guys can keep, keep up with me on it. Uh, like I said, I had to read it a lot to, to stay up, so I'll do my best to, to keep you guys where, where I'm at. So now that we've kind of looked at the passage, we've broken it down and tried to understand it a little bit as far as what's going on, we're going to start asking the question, what's the significance of this story? Why is God included in Scripture? What are we supposed to learn from it, and how do we respond to it? So I believe there's two intertwined themes for us to meditate on in this section. First thing we're going to meditate on is how God's chosen servant chooses to handle himself in the midst of this trial. So we have David in the midst of a trial, and we're going to look at the example of how he handles himself. The second point we're going to consider is what this story shows us about God's character and how he interacts with his servants. So first things first, let's look at the example of Yahweh's anointed, um, his chosen servant, the Messiah. And I'll probably use all of those phrases kind of interchangeably because they're synonymous with one another, and my mind doesn't always keep track of which one I was planning on saying. So just as a quick, quick reminder, the Hebrew word Messiah means anointed one. And what it means to be anointed is to, uh, well, literally to have oil poured on you to be set apart for something. And in this case, in the context of Scripture, the thing is being set apart for service to God. So what we have when we have an anointed one, or Messiah, we have a servant of God who has been set apart for his purpose. So you'll see in your notes, I have a few times down there, Yahweh's chosen servant. That could also be referring to Yahweh's anointed. So we're going to spend some time today kind of uh, looking at how the anointed here in our passage, David, points forward to the Messiah, the anointed, who ultimately fulfills all of God's promises. And for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about Jesus there. We're going to be looking at how David in this story examples Jesus who is to come. And he, he foreshadows Jesus who is to come. <clears throat> so in order to see that, I think our, the author of, of the text here contrasts David and Saul. So David is the Lord's anointed. Saul was the Lord's anointed, but he was not following the Lord, so he was rejected, and now stands as the anti-anointed. He stands against the Lord's anointed and against Yahweh. So Saul is standing against David here. We'll look at some contrast between Saul and David and how they handle situations, and I think that contrast is meant to help us see what David is doing here and how it glorifies God. So it highlights the example of David. Um, It kind of stands as as a beacon for us to see the way of Yahweh. And we'll connect how David's example also connects to Jesus himself and how he exampled life following the Father. So that will become evident, I think, as we look at it, that by aligning ourselves with David's example, we'll be following the footsteps of our Savior. So to summarize all that, hopefully get it through to you, the contrast between David and Saul will help to bring our attention to some of the successes David has as Yahweh's anointed. 
And I say that because we know, for those of us who know David's story, we know that he does not always succeed as the Lord's servant. He fails and he stumbles. But here in this text, highlighted are some successes that he has where he passes the test, unlike Saul, and he reflects the coming Messiah, Jesus. So without any further ado, let's jump into it and start with the contrast between David and Saul that I believe to be the most evident and clear for us to see. So this is the first point in your notes if you're a note taker. Point number one, the Lord's servant seeks guidance from Yahweh. So while the Lord's servant seeks guidance from Yahweh, we have the anti-anointed, Saul, relying on insight and help from fearful men. If you look back into verse 19 and 22, which is part four of of our text today, we're breaking into those four parts. It's the last part where Saul's getting information from some locals about where David's at. And when Saul hears this, um, he, he's excited to know where David is, but he asks him to go and look a little more, do some scouting, find out where all of David's hiding places are. He wants to confirm this information because he already tried to come after David once and David slipped through his fingers. So Saul, when he's faced with uh, the need for the confirmation of this information, turns to the, the human scouts that he has. And in a strange mirror-like way, we see David also in a similar situation where he needs information. He's trying to lead his men, like Saul is. And he needs information to do that well. But we see at the beginning of our section, in verses 2 and 4 and 10, three times when David is in need of information and confirmation, he seeks out the Lord. Verse 2, initially, uh, when he's considering going and fighting against the Philistines in Keilah. Verse 4, the confirmation when his men are fearful to go, he seeks confirmation from the Lord again. And in verse 10, when they're in the city and Saul's coming, once again, he seeks the Lord's advice. He seeks comfort from the Lord. So you see this contrast. And to me, I'm like, why do we need to know that Saul sent out scouts? To me, it's the author setting up a contrast between David and Saul. Saul is relying here not on God. And if you look, actually twice, he kind of makes it look like he is on the outside. Saul is, he, when, he, when he first hears that David is in the city of Keilah, he says, uh, surely God has delivered him into my hand. And then in verse 21, when the, the men tell him where David is, he says, may you be blessed by the Lord which I find really interesting that Saul is saying that stuff because if we look back one chapter, he's just massacred 85 priests and destroyed a whole city. He's not following the way of the Lord, but he's still putting on kind of this front that he relies on the Lord. But revealing is when he's in need of information, where does he go? He turns to the scouts. Whereas David, when he's in need of information and in need of help, he turns to the Lord. So David seeks out guidance from the Lord when in need of confirmation, and Saul seeks out guidance from the scouts. I believe that this contrast um, brings attention to the faithfulness of of David, the Lord's anointed here. And I want to further point out, as I was studying for this week, I I wanted to do kind of a big picture read-through. So I read through most of 1 and 2 Samuel. And actually listen to it, because that's, that's how I go through scriptures. I listen better than I read. But uh, I was listening to it, and as I was listening, I just, this theme just kept popping up. And it was David inquiring of the Lord over and over and over again. 
And immediately what came to mind was back when I was in Washington at a church in Snohomish, we did a, a Bible study in the book of Mark. And the same thing happened as we were studying Jesus' life. Every week it seemed like we're like, oh, Jesus went off to pray. Oh, again, Jesus went off to pray. And we just noticed this repeated theme of regularly Jesus being surrounded by people coming to him really busy, still always went off to pray. He made time and found time to be with his father and to seek um, comfort with the, the father and call upon the father. So my conclusion here is that the Messiah made it a priority in hard times to call upon the Father for strength and guidance. And I intentionally said the Messiah there because I'm trying to play on both David, the Lord's anointed, and Jesus, the Lord's anointed. Both of them in this situation are doing the same thing and pointing us to the same example of leaning on the Father in prayer. So for us, I think the application is clear. When we're in need of guidance, we need to call on the Lord for help. When we're faced with tests and trials and hard times, the first place we turn shouldn't be to self-help books or Google searches, which is really tempting because it's really easy to find information. When we need comfort, we don't need to go get a tub of ice cream from the, the gas station or sit down and watch uh, a relaxing movie on Netflix. But when we need comfort and wisdom, we need to go to the Lord to find his guidance. And in this case, we see David use an ephod to inquire of the Lord. So next Sunday, the plan is everyone who can sew will get together and we'll start making some ephods so everyone can have one. No, obviously I'm joking. But I do want to address what an ephod is and the fact that David is using an ephod to inquire of the Lord. Um, so briefly, let's consider that. So in verses 6 and 9, I'm not going to read them, but you can look there if you'd like. The author goes out of his way and points out that David had an ephod with him. Came, it came to him um, through the priest. Abathar, I believe, was the name, unless that's his father. Um, came to him through the priest, and pointed out again, David says, bring the, the ephod here. So the author went out of his way to point this out. David has an ephod. A lot of you are probably wondering, what is an ephod? Um, so if you really want to do a deep study into it, you can go and look at Exodus 28, and 1 Samuel 14, 41, and you can get an idea of what the ephod is and what it was for. I'll quickly summarize it for us. Um, it was a form of divination ordained by God. So pretty much if someone like David wanted to inquire of the Lord, they would simply ask Yahweh for what they need in a yes or no question, and the priest, wearing an ephod, which is a sort of vest, would, then it had a pocket in the front with two stones. The priest would pull out one of the stones, and that would reveal the answer of the Lord. So to us, it seems like a very strange activity, um, but that's because we're not Israelites living in um, the, the culture that they lived in. And so to us, that seems very strange, and for good reason, because that's not how God has set up for us to inquire of him now. Um, Romans eight twenty six teaches us that we have the Holy Spirit who guides us in our prayers. Um, and Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then approach God's throne with grace and confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So we're not Hebrews living in ancient Israel, and we, we don't need an ephod. We've been given access to the Lord through our high priest, Jesus. So we can come before the Lord confidently in prayer, and we don't need an ephod or a man wearing it, but can pray directly to God and discern his will in the scriptures that he has given us. 
So it's just a short little rabbit trail on ephods and discerning the Lord's word, uh, word in prayer. So the principle, ephod aside, is that we, like David, should be seeking out the Lord's counsel and not be seeking out, simply seeking out men's counsel like Saul was. But the difference in context means that we seek out the Lord's counsel and guidance in prayer and in the study of scriptures rather than using an ephod. And Jesus even examples this for us in his context, which is even still a different context than us, but years separated. But Jesus examples for us prayer and the study of scriptures. Um, so the application for us, of the first point, is that we would um, seek out the Lord when we're in times of trial um, for guidance. All right, moving on to point two, the second point of contrast between David and Saul. Point number two, the Lord's servant refuses to take for himself what has been promised, but confidently waits on the Lord. So in contrast, Saul, when he was faced with difficulty back in chapter 14 and 15, took matters into his own hands and did what he thought was best. Some of you will remember this from a few weeks back when Steve was preaching on it. Um, Saul faced a situation where he was about to go into battle and they needed to offer some sacrifices, but Samuel wasn't there yet. So Saul took it on himself to offer those sacrifices. He knew that needed to happen and that was a good thing, but he decided to go about it his own way and didn't wait on the Lord's timing. And again, when he was commanded to wipe out, wipe out the wicked Amalekites, instead of fully following the Lord's commands, he decided to, uh, um, to take for himself some of the, the valuable resources. He, he destroyed most of everything, but he's like, well, these valuable resources are good. We probably shouldn't destroy those. And they decided to, to save those. So we see the, the example of, of Saul being that he did what he thought was best. And he, he took... Um, he took what he thought they needed in that time. And to the contrary, we have David, the Lord's anointed servant. And David, remember, is in the midst of a very difficult trial. He's been exiled and is literally being hunted down by his father-in-law. Um, and, he, and not only that, but he's been promised the kingdom of Israel and hasn't been given it yet. And so now, think about this situation. He's got an army around him, and he's been promised this kingdom— he could easily start to try to take it himself. He could plan some strategic battles. We know he was a great warrior. But instead, what David does is he waits on the Lord's timing. So this is a theme that we're going to see kind of fleshed out in the coming chapters quite a bit. Um, but we're just going to quickly, um, just quickly talk about it today. So <clears throat> David is patiently waiting for God to work out his plan and not trying to take the matters into his own hands. David passes the test where Saul failed. And this points forward to Jesus, the better Messiah, the better servant of, of, of God, the better king. Because Jesus also faced a similar trial. In Matthew 4, 8, we see Satan tempting Jesus. And what does Satan tempt Jesus with? With kingship and glory, with kingship and rulership over the land and glory. But those are the things that have already been promised to Jesus by the Father. But Satan wants Jesus to take them in his own timing, to take them rather than wait for the Father to give those promised blessings. Of course, Jesus refuses and waits on the Father's timing. So 
the application for us in this example of both David and Jesus is that in the midst of hardship and trial, we're called to trust God. It can be tempting when we face hard times to take matters into our own hands and try to decide what is best. Um, instead of seeking out the Lord's will for the solution, waiting on his timing. But both Jesus and David example for us the patient contentment of waiting on God's timing and God's provision. So as I spoke of earlier, we could think of the example of of how COVID, the COVID pandemic, and uh, how the changing economy are a hardship and a trial for us. In those situations... We're to trust in the Lord. We're to continue walking in his ways. Um, it becomes tempting to be like, well, you know, God calls us to be generous, but right now things are getting tight. So I, I don't think I'm going to be able to be generous. And not, not trust in the Lord in that. Um, not trust in the Lord in our relationship with others. As, as we're in a time where the common thing is to, when someone opposes your point of view, to attack them and to... Um, just go, go ham attacking the person um, and, and um, putting them down. And that's not the way of the Lord. Um, it's easy for us to fall into those temptations of attacking others rather than showing them love and truth and grace. So I think that's kind of what it looks like for us to, to wait on the Lord. We're waiting for the, his final judgment. It's not for us now to, to do that. Our place now is to be loving and to showing the grace of God sharing the truth of God in love and grace, um, and to con- continually walking in his ways. All right, so let's move on to our final point of contrast between David and Saul. Point number three, the Lord's chosen servant obediently intercedes for those in need despite his own dire situation. So while David, the Lord's servant, intercedes for those in need, we have the contrast, Saul, In the last chapter, we see Saul massacring 85 priests in a whole town, the town of Nob, in fearful revenge. He's afraid that people are out to get him and that they're conspiring with David. So he just kills a whole group of people, a whole town, and all uh, all 85 of God's priests. So Saul examples the selfish, selfish, strongest will survive mindset of the world by simply cutting down those who oppose him. While David glorifies the character of God and reflects the heart of God in his defense of the town of Keilah. So we're talking about the first part of our story today. God has a heart for the defenseless and for the needy. And David willingly puts himself and his men at risk and in harm's way to defend those in the town of Keilah. David's willing courage here, willing courage here, points forward to the sacrificial work of Jesus David and his men put themselves at risk for the sake of those in need, reflecting God's heart, while Jesus, sent by the Father, obediently humbled himself and became a man and willingly walked to his own torture and death on behalf of all of those who had sinned against God. I mean, talk about courage. David and his men went and fought a battle, but Jesus went with, with the hope of victory But Jesus went knowing he was going to suffer, knowing what he had to face, Um, the separation um, of his relationship with the Father um, would have been the most unbearable part of that. So Jesus is, is, David points to Jesus in in his act here. Um, 
He displays obedience and daring, victory over the opposition. And that points to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise and victory in Jesus Christ. And so it is for us. David pointed forward to Jesus. We too can point to Jesus. We'll be pointing back to Jesus and what he has done. When we face trials and persecution, when we willingly sacrifice our own safety, our own comfort, and our own desires for those in need, we'll be pointing back to Jesus and what he did, glorifying him. So I'm going to propose to you kind of a challenging point here that when we face hardship in our lives, we're not called to simply protect ourselves. Like you think of when a bear attacks, you curl up in the fetal position. You're not supposed to move. You're not supposed to do anything. You just cover up and just hope for the best. That's not what we're called to do. We're not called to just hide away in safety and in controlled environments where we we have absolute control over what's happening. We can't be hurt. We're comfortable. That's not what we're called to. We're called to give ourselves up for the sake of others in need, as we see David doing here and his men, and as we see our Savior Jesus did for us. So that's a very challenging point, um, and how that plays out in your life will be different than anyone else's. So I can't, I can't just give a list of examples of what that'll look like for you, but I want that point to sink into your heart, that we're called to follow our Savior, and what he did was sacrificially gave himself up for those in need, that being us in need. So likewise, we're called to live, to give ourselves up for those in need. All right, let's as that concludes our third point of following the example of Yahweh's anointed. So now we're going to ponder something that's a little bit more hidden in the text. And likely many of you saw it uh, immediately, but it's not necessarily because it's obvious, but because you have a trained eye. So the next few points I want us to meditate on are regarding God's providential care uh, for David and what that shows about Yahweh. So... I uh, initially made a little mistake here. My wife, Mackenzie, our new administrative assistant, managed to fix it, but I accidentally put in there God's provincial care of David, not providential. So uh, when I saw that, I was like, oh, maybe I, should, maybe I should talk a little bit what that means before we go too far into it. Provincial has to do with provinces or regions or states, and that's not what we're talking about here. David, I mean, we actually see Saul doing some provincial care when he goes back to defend his lands. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about providential care. A little, few extra letters in there. My lazy tongue sometimes slips out provincial when I mean providential. But we're talking about God's providential care. So I was like, maybe we should talk about that and define it a little bit. Providence, God's providential care. Um, when you look up provident, uh, provid, providential in a dictionary, you'll probably find something along the lines of, occurring at a favorable or opportune time. Um, It happened providentially. But in the context we're talking about, when we're talking about God, providential means God is interceding at that time. God is in control of all things, and he's interceding just in the nick of time to make sure things work out. So in our text today, we see David fleeing for his life, and it looks like he's caught. God providentially intervenes and delivers David. So, as we consider God, Yahweh's caring um, providence, him caring enough to intercede on, our, on David's behalf, we're going to look at God's, what I call God's invisible hand at work. Put that next to there, yeah, on the, on the slide. Um, his invisible hand. Maybe a little bit easier of a way of thinking of it than 
um, providential care, if you don't like big words. God's invisible hand at work. So in order to, to make this point, I want to talk about a hermeneutical principle in understanding the Bible. This principle states that to interpret unclear and hard parts of the Bible, we use an understanding that we have based on clear parts of the Bible. So if something's confusing and doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense, we use other parts of Scripture that are clear to us to interpret that part of Scripture. So for example, in our passage today, we have David escaping Saul by means of what seems like a, a coincidence that, that some Philistines attacked at the same time. So when we look at something like this, we know because we've learned elsewhere in Scripture, such as Romans 8.28 or Ephesians 1.11, that God is in control of all things and is working all things out. So we read such stories as these, and we're right to have in mind that God is working behind the scenes. His invisible hand is at work behind these events. But not only that, not only based on our larger understanding of Scripture can we come to that conclusion, also in this passage alone we have a little hint from the author of of the fact that God's invisible hand is working behind the scenes. So if you look in verse 14, in the second half of verse 14, it says, And Saul sought him every day, him being David. So Saul sought David every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So we see a little glimpse there from the author that reminds us God is working at work behind these events. When we read the events, we're just seeing people, what they're doing, such and such happened, and David happened to get away. And that, and at initial reading, a lot of people probably see that. But hidden behind that, once you have a trained eye to see God's invisible hand at work, we, we can see much of what God is doing here and learn much about his character. Okay, so with that in mind, we're going to be moving on to our, our second section, three sets of points about what we learn about God, uh, what we learn about Yahweh because of how he handles the situation. So the first point, probably the most challenging one, um, is Yahweh allows his chosen servants to face trials and testing. So again, come to this conclusion, not based off a specific verse or something that's stated here, but because in this passage, we're shown that God is working behind these events. And we also know that based on other scriptures. So I say this, that, that Yahweh allows his chosen servants to face trials because David's there. He's been chased by Saul. He's on the run, on the brink of death, hiding out in the wilderness, away from his family, and he's suffering. He's in a hard time. God has control over this whole situation. God has allowed David to face this hardship. Because if you think about it, God appointed David as the next king. God could have thrown Saul down immediately. He could have replaced him and put David in place. But God, in his wisdom, decided that this is the, the, the route that needed to happen. This is what needed to take place. And he saw fit to allow David, his chosen servant, to face this trial. So as we consider God's providential care for David, and as we ponder God's sovereignty, his control over all things, we get to wrestle with the fact that God has control not only over those moments where David is saved, but also the fact that David is facing this hardship in the first place. Now, I'm not saying that God is not good, and I'm not pointing the finger at God. I just don't want us to brush past this point lightly and have a weak theology not understanding who our God is. We're not going to have time to fully explore this concept of God's sovereignty and suffering, 
Um, but I just want to quickly point out um, some encouragement to you guys. And if you want to further study into it, I would encourage you to start by reading the book of Job. So yeah, I think it's important for us to wrestle with this reality now, that God is in control of all things. He's in control of the salvation that David experiences, but he's also in control of the fact that David faced these hard times. And I want us to think about that now, because when we get into situations where we're facing hard times, it's easy to start to doubt God. And if we don't have a solid foundation and understanding of who God is, then it's easy for us to turn from him and to start pointing the finger at him. Um, So I want to remind us, um, out of Isaiah, based on Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, that God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. His wisdom is infinitely beyond ours, and he chooses to, to, um, to do things that we don't understand. We don't always fully understand it. And the end, of the end of the situation is that's just where we have to sit. We're sitting here like, why, God? Why would you do this? Why did you allow this? Um, but it, it's our place to trust him. Think of how Jesus was sent to face the most difficult trial of all, to be beaten, tortured, and murdered on a cross. And not only that, Jesus, who is God and has experienced an eternal communion with the Father, had to experience separation from the Father because of the sin that he took on, our sin that he took on. So Jesus had to face unimaginable suffering because the Father sent him to do it, but for a good reason. And we know that good reason, because without that, we would have no way to be reunited with our Creator. So God does things that we don't always understand. He has a reason why. We might never know the reason why. Sometimes we can conclude and come to some answers of what God is doing, but sometimes we just have to trust. And I think that's the awesome part of the example here. We see David trusting God, despite the fact that this situation doesn't, probably didn't make much sense to him. So I just want to encourage you guys with that and encourage you to wrestle through it a little bit. Um, and with that heavy thought on our minds, we'll move to our next point, which will be encouraging because it's the, the flip side of, uh, of that coin. Um, that yes, God is in control and allows us to face hardship and suffering. But point number two is that Yahweh shows his loving hand by comforting his servant with the fellowship of other believers. So we've just thought about how God allows us to face hardship. Now we're going to consider how Yahweh comforts. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so we see here in our text, David is facing quite the hardship, quite the trial that the Lord has allowed him to face. But God doesn't leave him to it alone. God sends Jonathan, his friend, who, as we discussed earlier, in the world's view, should have been his rival, but his friend, to encourage him. And I'm sure the, the fellowship and the friendship, the companionship, was an encouragement. But not only that, we see that Jonathan encourages David in the Lord. He encourages David to take hope and take trust in God's plan. And I think the biggest encouragement is Jonathan's example himself. He's coming to David saying, hey, God's going to make you king. And by saying that, he's saying, God's making me, who should have been king, not king. And Jonathan is okay with that. Jonathan trusts God's plan, despite the fact of what it means for him. So Jonathan's trust of God is an encouragement to David. 
And I think it should be an encouragement to us too. Um, I, uh, I think that it's a good reminder too for us of how God works, how he comforts, how he strengthens us. And it should be a reminder for us to not give up meeting together because of the fact that God uses other believers to encourage and to um, embolden and to um, give us strength when we need it in hard times. So we shouldn't give up meeting together. We should be looking forward to coming together and being encouraged by one another and also coming in the hopes that God will use us as he used Jonathan. He'll use us to encourage our fellow believers. We don't always know what someone else is facing. And when we come together, we have the opportunity to be God's tool, used as Jonathan is here, to encourage David, and we can encourage our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So I think that we can take hope in the fact that, that God will allow us to face hard times, but he's not going to leave us to it alone. He's going to give us the strength we need, and he's going to encourage us. And in a large part, and oftentimes, he does that through fellow believers. Okay, coming to our final point, Yahweh delivers his servant from death. So I don't think I need to explain myself too much here. Already we pointed out that David was being chased by Saul, who intended to kill him. And we see in the text that he was being surrounded by Saul's army. And in that moment, God intervenes by sending a Philistine army that Saul has to go back and defend against. So David was caught and cornered, and God showed him grace and delivered him. I believe that with confidence, we're supposed to understand this part of the text as God's invisible hand at work. And we see that God steps in and providentially saves David. So I don't think this should be any surprise to us who are in Christ that Yahweh is a deliverer. And by deliverer, I don't mean delivery man that delivers your, delivers your Amazon packages. In fact, we got one this morning at 6 in the morning. Deliverer, in the biblical context, means God delivers his people, but deliverer meaning the one who sets his people free. God sets his people free. In this situation, he sets David free from a trap that his enemy set for him. So, in this text, I think the temptation can be to try to make the application, well, God delivered David here from the situation, so God's going to deliver me from hardships that I face. But as we already talked about, God's the one that allows us to face hardships, and he won't leave us alone in them. But the promise here is not that we will be delivered from hardships, and it's not that God will always deliver his people from immediate harm. We have so many examples in Scripture where God's people willingly walk to their deaths in following him, and God doesn't intervene. So we can always know why God does what he does. So the promise here isn't that God's going to intervene and save you from hardships. Um, but I think the example that we see of God's deliverance of David reminds us of who our God is, that he is a deliverer, that he wants to set his people free. And that's exactly why we're meeting here today, because he rescued us. He has set us free. He's delivered us. We're celebrating that, the ultimate deliverance. God is our deliverer, and doesn't mean we're expecting deliverance in every situation. David faced hardship, and God allowed him to face it. He could have, God could have thrown down Saul at any point, but God allowed him to face that hardship. He didn't tell David to sit back and relax on a, a cushion in his palace, but God rescued David in the midst of a situation that David couldn't handle. 
So God was allowing David to face the, these trials. But when the situation become, became unbearable and David couldn't handle it, God stepped in and rescued him. And in the same way, we, found our, we have found ourselves in a situation we can't handle. We are all sinful. We all have a sinful nature, and we're trapped in our sinful nature apart from God. And we can't do anything about it. We're trapped in our waywardness. And only by Jesus taking the punishment that we deserved and giving us the reward that he deserved are we rescued from our plight. So as Christians, our hope isn't simply that God would make our lives easier or make us better versions of ourselves, but our hope is that we, through Christ, can be and have been reunited to our Creator, reunited in a relationship to Him. Our part is to trust that He's got it handled and follow Him. In verse 28, the end of our section here, we see that they named the place where God delivered David the Rock of Escape. So each time someone went by that place or gave directions and go two miles down past the Rock of Escape and take a left, every time they went through this area, they remembered what God had done for David. They remembered the deliverance that Yahweh provided. And in the same way, we gather here this morning and take communion together as a milestone, as a marker to remind us of what God has done for us. And when we take communion, we don't take it out of obligation, but joyfully remembering what Jesus has done for us, how he stepped in providentially to care for us and rescue us, to deliver us through his own suffering. So communion is our rock of escape, our milestone to remind us of Jesus' rescue of us. So we take the juice to remember the blood that he spilled for us and the bread to remember how his body was broken for us. So as we spend this time in remembrance, let it sink in how great Yahweh's love is for us and remember how he providentially stepped in and to to save us from certain death. Let's pray before we... Um, practice communion together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the example that we see here of how you loved and provided for David. I pray that we will remember regularly um, when we take communion and each day your love for us, that we might be encouraged in the face of hardship um, and that we might be um, strengthened to follow you and to wait on your timing and to wait on what you have for us. I just pray that today as we we worship you, that um, you'll be moving in our hearts and that you'll um, help us to not do this out of religious obligation or just out of routine and let it become something we do every week, but to really remember what you've done for us and how you've saved us from our dire situation. Let's pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.